0: Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller.
1: My guest today is Raghav Vajla, the Federal Trade Commission's Chief Information Officer. Raghav, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's been quite a while since I've had the FTC CIO on. I think it's almost been probably more than four years. So there's a lot of kind of older parties I'd like to catch up with you on. And uh, let me start with the FTC's move to the cloud. It seems like four years ago the cloud was new. We all, everyone was excited about it, but now it seems a little old hat. So just give us an update. How is the FTC taking advantage of cloud services?
2: So the biggest thing is I think there's been a, a long history here at the FTC of trying to do different things with technology, uh, especially with a lot of the do not call and consumer sentinel services that we have. So I'd say roughly about half of our spending has always been you know, looking at doing things off-premise. So in addition to that, we've had a FTC.gov in the cloud for some time, and you know, going forward more recently, uh, we've really taken a, a big focus on those things that are mission critical and mission essential and trying to put them in the cloud. Uh, our big effort last year was uh, you know, being part of the larger FedRAMP community. We FedRAMPed a uh, Relativity a legal review product, which is highly, of course, tied to our mission with uh, roughly half of our agency as uh, general attorneys. So, uh, in terms of uh, what's been going on in the last four years, uh, we just can you know, consistently kind of try, to find, wherever we have an opportunity, any kind of refresh opportunity that we have, we, we reconsider, okay, what's another way of doing this? Can we uh, take advantage of something that's already built out there in the cloud, and how do we uh, work through our acquisitions and budgeting program to make it happen?
1: Do you have a sense of, are you 50% of all apps in the cloud or 50% of all systems in the cloud? Do you have any kind of way to quantify it?
2: I think i probably put ourselves in the path of like, how much of our data is in the cloud? And I think it wouldn't surprise me if we uh, are getting more and more well into the uh, 60s, 70s, and even beyond that as we go through our next set of uh, modernizations. One of the interesting things about uh, how to count how much of your stuff goes in the cloud is that every year there's a new definition for how that progresses. And you know, one of the things that we've often looked at is the number of systems that we have. And of course, you know, with OMB, every new product that we use in cloud becomes its own system. And one of the things that we notice is that every year we have like one or two new systems show up on our inventory that reflect something that we've taken out of our existing data center and put into one of these uh, cloud service providers that offer very highly targeted services for some of our mission needs.
1: It's interesting when I walked into your office in your hallway, you have the information about your data centers and your data centers, you know, 95% uptime It talked about open tickets and closed tickets. It was great that you put all that information out there, not just for me to see, but it's probably better even for your uh, staff to see and the the people who work at FTC is your data center. One piece of the the cloud effort, meaning it's a, if you will, a, a government cloud or a private cloud in some ways. It's a data center that we operate in our facilities. Uh, I think the, the best way to put
2: it is it has is, uh, been a big part of our past, has been a big part of our success in the past, but we know we, know we have to shrink its footprint to be successful in the future. Uh, a big part of all of that information that you see in our hallway is that you know, we want to get, we get excited about every little thing that we move out of that data center, every server, uh, every appliance, you know, every rack. You know, we think about, you know, we quantify everything to see how do we move from point A to point B. And uh, I think the best way to do that is just to reinforce that to our staff and our customers uh, uh, internally here. You know, a big part of moving to the cloud is that it's not glamorous. It's just a lot of hard work uh, identifying individual pieces of equipment, individual services, and you're trying to figure out when is the right time and place to move it. And, uh, you know, I want to recognize that kind of diligence from our staff and saying, hey, every detail matters. You know, every single server and every appliance and every one of those racks, uh, at some point in time, we're going to address and move from point A to point B.
1: The FTC is not a huge agency. It's not the Interior Department. It's not USDA. But at the same time, you still have the requirement to follow the OMB data center consolidation. There's a new draft policy out. Without asking you about the draft policy and your thoughts on that, but how have you guys been reducing the data center footprint? have Optimization has that been a major priority as as, as part of the cloud initiative as well?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think if you go back, uh, you know what what used to take place like 10 years ago, you'd have You'd have services for development environments, you'd have services for staging environments, then you'd have you know, services for, for production environments. Uh, even those process environments, You know those were our first things we took a look at, it. how can we move some of these you know, off-premise? Uh, with all the cloud vendors coming in, yeah, we don't have to have a development service on-site, we use their development services off-site. Uh, similarly, for a lot of our uh, testing and disaster recovery services, we're trying to think through all of our procurement schedules. How do we move that you know, off-site as quickly as we can? So in terms of the data center, initiatives from uh, OMV, you know, for us, it's. uh, I think we are already pretty consolidated in terms of physical facility, you know, footprint. So we're just trying to go to the next step, which is, you know, not just like looking at it from server from point A to point B, but we're really trying to revisit what was once infrastructure as a service. Why can't it be software as a service or platform as a service for us? So it's not simply, you know, moving like for like. We really want to replace the the type of platform support that we're getting for some of these uh, in uh, various technology platforms that we have.
1: You almost uh, set me up for my next question perfectly, which is now that we talked about the past, let's look at the future a little bit. Where do you expect cloud to take the FTC or where do you expect to use the cloud uh, over the next you know, 12, 18 months? How much more are you moving into it?
2: You know, the first thing we're gonna take a look at is uh, all of our security services. I think like a lot of agencies, uh, we have a lot of institutional investments in security platforms that are really you know, dependent on everything coming into one place and looking at all this data analysis in one place. and. You know, the reality is for the cloud uh, environments to work, we have to have a much more distributed approach to security. So our biggest effort is going to be uh, how to re-engineer our entire security platform. So regardless of where our content is, we can always enforce our controls and policies consistently, regardless of the device our customers use and regardless of where and when they're working. That's probably the number one thing that we're going to be taking a look at. And I think after we get through that, then I do think it's you know, primarily a procurement exercise of how and when we choose to adopt different uh, cloud services.
1: It's interesting you mentioned security in the cloud. I know we'll get to the, that later with the continuous diagnostics and mitigation program, but generally speaking, what's how do you envision security in the cloud? What, what does that mean to you or or what would it potentially even look like?
2: I think every organization is gonna be, uh, you going through a lot of choices on how uh, they enforce their security policies. And it can take very different shapes for different organizations. So for example, if uh, you're an organization that wants to issue equipment to its employees, whether they're smartphones or laptops, you're going to go down a path of you know, finding mechanisms to do monitoring and control on those endpoints. If you're an organization that, for a variety of reasons, decides, oh, we're going to do everything as a virtual desktop, and it'll be bring your own equipment, bring your own device, bring your own laptop, bring your own smartphone, you would apply all your security policies and all your virtual desktop hosting platforms. And I think that's the, when I say you know, moving your security into the clouds, those are the kind of choices that we're trying to, you know, work, or, or work through right now. The reality is, regardless of where your data is, you have to have a vision of how you're gonna enforce your security policies and do it in a way where you can share the data for situational awareness with DHS, whether it's for continuous diagnostic and monitoring or uh, for OMB, for any of these other, you know, various data sharing activities that we have. But it's gotta be consistent and it's gotta take, a, it takes a lot of forethought, cause you're in effect not just planning security, you're actually planning the customer experience for uh, all your employees and workforce. And everything's got to be done consistently in time, and then you're going to train everyone on how all the new security platforms work. Uh, You know, for us, when I say it's a big part of our our effort, absolutely. We are very much, uh, you know, uh, big fans of, you know, revisiting all of our services to improve life for our customers. But it's going to start with security. And, uh, you know, we are... A big believer is that if security is done right up front, you know, a secure environment will be a great customer service environment, too.
1: It's able to find the right balance between something that's secure enough but also serves the customer yeah, and it doesn't frustrate them. One of the other things about when we talk cloud is, is the mission side. We, a lot of people talk back office. A lot of people mm-hmm. talk administrative type services. But from a FTC, you mentioned, for instance, FTC.gov is already in the cloud. You mentioned some of the, the do not call efforts are probably that's using correct. some sort of cloud services. Is, is that been an easier road for FTC to get some of the mission side into the cloud?
2: I'm not sure if it was it was so much easier or harder. Was like the really the, the frame of mind there? It was just it was much more of a case of, wow, these are very critical systems with some significant price tags. You know what is the best way to economically you know manage them you know going forward? And inevitably, when you start doing that kind of math on that scale, you'll you'll come to uh, some assessment. That, oh, there's there are some definitely some benefits to taking advantage of cloud services and getting these things done in the future. So we're able to focus much more on quality of service towards the mission than, you know, for example, uh, when's the next time I'm gonna have to refresh these servers? So it was was more of a case of uh, when those opportunities had come up in the past, and we kind of understood the price tags that were associated with those opportunities. We just want to spend more of our energy and resources on getting results for the mission, and that's what kind of lent itself to that. In terms of comparing that to the back office, or you know email and all those other areas of effort. I just think for a long time, you know, the the talent and the resources favored doing it in house, and uh, and then somewhere along the the last ten years, became pretty clear. Oh, the cost viabilities were much more uh, scalable in uh, in cloud services. So it's just, it's just a matter of timing and opportunity and what worked out best for the agency. Uh, but the great thing is, I think at the FTC, you know, we were willing to see the entire market and see what was best for us and go forward with that.
1: The other piece of this is the missions. when you talk about mission side, is their comfortability. Because you're here, as I've heard CIOs tell me time and again, to serve the mission. Mm -hmm. How do I make the mission easier, better, faster, cheaper, better? Did you get any kind of cross-eyed look and any pushback from the mission side when you're like, hey, we're going to put that in the cloud, or hey, we'd like to look at the the cost-benefit analysis of the cloud versus in-house? Is the reaction been what from the mission side when when you talk cloud?
2: Any organization, if they're if they're looking at what they control and don't control, I think if you bring up cloud to them, yeah, I think their initial reaction and appropriate reaction is, hey, let's make sure we're doing everything correct. let make sure we're uh, managing risk appropriately. And I and I would say that definitely happened here. And I, and I think it, and I think when it does happen, you know, the question is, how do you walk through that organization? And to, to show them, it doesn't matter where the data is. It Doesn't matter, you know, is, is it this contracting structure or that contracting structure? What matters is, hey, what are those security policies that we have? You know, what are the checklists that we have, and are they getting consistently implemented, regardless of wherever we're, we're hosting our services? So there is a bit of education in that because I think for many organizations they're not aware of these many checklists that so many that so many of us have in place. So we go through that education process. They have confidence that no matter where the data is, we are going to go through those same checklists. Everything gets audited by third parties. You know, with FISMA, we always have our IG auditing also taking place. So there's a ton of oversight and scrutiny, and it doesn't matter where you put the data. Uh, so a big part of my effort has been, you know, educating people that no matter where we decide to go from a technology support perspective, there are no shortcuts when it comes to security. We always, you know, uh, make that our primary. Uh, our primary focus
1: let's take a quick break when we come back we can talk about some maybe some older other older priorities my guest is Raghav Vajala the Federal Trade Commission's Chief Information Officer I'm your host Jason Miller and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio part of the Federal News Network
0: Qualcomm believes
3: the world should move in one direction forward they introduced the world to 3G and 4G and now they've unlocked 5G and with it the invention age that means smartphones with unprecedented mobile speeds cars will connect to each other and virtually everything around them and your pc will be as connected as your smartphone learn more about the invention age at qualcom.com/weinvent
0: intelligent transformation it's what we do
1: at perspecta we think digital transformation is more than changing technology
0: It's an opportunity to redefine strategies and accelerate mission results.
1: That's why we're constantly innovating. To solve
3: the government's most complex problems.
0: Because the IT modernization journey doesn't have a finish line.
1: Perspecta, where digital transformation meets the mission.
0: Learn more at Perspecta.com. Over 1,000 government contractors trust Uninet to manage projects, people, and financials. A few of these CXOs share stories about the impact of Uninet on their companies. Uninet allowed us to shorten the time to close the books by 90%.
1: Adapting Uninet was so simple with their training and hyper-responsive team.
0: Uninet replaces legacy systems, eliminates wasted effort, and allows you to focus on transforming your business. Learn more at Uninet.com. That's U-N-A-N-E-T dot com. How can we realize the promise of data-driven government? What do chief data officers actually do? How can they help government agencies use data to inform decision-making? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Jane Wiseman, author of the IBM Center Report, Data-Driven Government, The Role of Chief Data Officers. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Mondays at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network.
3: Tom Temen
0: here, coming up on Friday's Federal Drive. They're getting paid again, but that hasn't improved the working conditions of people who staff federal prisons. Plus, several recent presidential administrations have had to deal with special counsels. We review the legal history of this function. You'd be surprised how far back it goes. Join me Friday morning, starting at 6, for the Federal Drive with Tom Temen. Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Read what's on the minds of your colleagues. Download our free executive surveys at Federal News Network. Search Surveys.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Raghav Vajula, the Federal Trade Commission's Chief Information Officer. Now, Raghav, before break, we're talking about some older priorities. Another older priority, back in uh, about four years ago or so, was a mobile computing platform. The CIO at the time was talking about moving in that direction. Maybe talk about where you're at with a mobile computing platform, and how does the FTC support its mobile workforce today?
2: We have an MDM solution in place. You know, we support uh, iPhones and Androids. You know, in that sense, you know, we're we're very similar to many many other agencies. In, in terms of uh, looking forward, uh, our biggest you know focus in terms of all of our Uh, Endpoints, whether it is a phone or a laptop, is a consistent use of a virtual private network. Our big focus in in terms of what is the most consistent way to ensure consistent access experience and consistent security monitoring, we think virtual private networks are the way to go. That, of course, uh, entails a lot of review of uh, how the phones are set up and really thinking of the phone as just another computer on our network. Uh, you know, as we issue our phones, in many ways, we are issuing our workforce to computers. You know, one's this uh, high-powered phone, and another one is this uh, a laptop. And we want to try and make sure both of them are kind of ubiquitous in their experience. And one way to do that is to make sure, like, they're both recognized elements of our network through a virtual private network.
1: Now, I know the MDM, what that is supposed to do, but is the VPN piece, is how hard is that to push it through a, a phone? I mean, what, what's the challenge there?
2: There really isn't a technical challenge. It's really more of a case of getting it in sync with all your services. So the best example of this is regardless of what device that you have that we issue you, all of your traffic is monitored consistently and all of your security settings are done consistently. So I think there's plenty of technology that's out there today that maybe was not there, I'd say, uh, five, ten years ago. And uh, especially with uh, more, and more, more and more of our customers you know, These are, in terms of virtual private network, these are things people have in their homes now. So uh, we definitely have a lot of uh, options to choose from. And, it, and the trick is, of course, picking, picking the right ones that offer the consistent experience, uh, not only for our customers but for a lot of our staff and operating and maintaining.
1: Is the bring-your-own-device, the BYOD, that was a trend that we saw several years ago. It's kind of ebbed and flowed. Some agencies are better about it. Most are not. Where does the FTC stand with BYOD?
2: We're probably, at, at this point, still going to stick with issuing equipment. Initial equipment for some time. I think it really depends, you know. I, I said before, uh, it kind of depends on how you envision deploying your security and where you're going to enforce your policies. With the BYOD, you're making different choices on where to do that. And obviously, you know, with, with endpoint management and CDM, we're looking at a lot of our CDM services to look at our endpoints as well.
1: One of the things about uh, mobile devices or even just a mobile workforce, forget about which device they use, whether it's laptop or a tablet or a phone. Is that balance? How, how do you make sure that the mission side is, can access their data, can access their applications, but at the same time be secure in doing that? How do you find that right balance? Because I think as more agencies are m- becoming more mobile, whether through telework or other reasons, that your job becomes a lot harder.
2: The, I think the, the cloud move actually helps us quite a bit. You know, it, it eliminates the variability of, you know, where is the data? You know, as long as the devices, you know, regardless of what type of device it is, uh, as long as it's pulling from those consistent locations that we've authorized for access in the cloud, that eliminates a lot of uncertainty for us. So um, I think that the fact that uh, a lot of the mobile computing happened alongside of the migration to the cloud actually helped. You know, both both the uh, uh, paradigm
1: shifts kind of helped each other out. Is your MDM in the cloud or is it on premise? It's a mix, it's a hybrid. Another older party, and it's probably the last one before we jump into some newer ones is around data analytics and. You know, again, this is a, a time four years ago when data analytics was just kind of starting. Now, again, I'll refer back to your hallway again, and, and you have decisions to data, and you have some, some posters out there that really talk about the importance of using data to make better decisions. So maybe let's start with how are you guys addressing data analytics, and we can talk about the, the, how they are influencing decisions as well.
2: I think the, the best example, public example, of what the FTC does with data is uh, our Consumer Sensible Network uh, Tableau site. Uh, Over the last couple of years, we've been posting more and more of uh, consumer complaint data, Tableau, and uh, there's a publicly available data dashboard and provides a great insight into how that data informs our own law enforcement efforts uh, inside the agency. In terms of other data sets that we use internally, one thing that uh, uh, a lot of our modernization efforts started with is reviewing all of our uh, policies and procedures. So it doesn't matter where the content is, we follow consistent standards on how we do all of our updates. And now we have a very rich and very detailed trail of data on, on nearly every decision we've made to change things for the for the customer on the order of thousands. And not all of them worked. You know, I think we have a very good sense now of tracking, you know, what's worked successfully and what hasn't worked successfully. The phrase we use over and over again is that good engineering is a byproduct of good communication and we document as much of our communication for every one of these configuration changes that we can. And uh, I do think you know part of a big part of uh, having a data-rich culture is having a communication-rich culture. And I think one precedes the other. So we will continue to try and find uh, a variety of different ways to, to tabulate every decision. Some things will work, some things won't work, but it's really the culture that we wanna inspire amongst all of our staff that, hey, things are worth tracking, things are worth measuring and evaluating. And a lot of this, in terms of where it came from, you know, in 2014, they passed an update to FISMA. And the whole part of updating FISMA was getting past just consistently implementing your policies and procedures. It was about managing and measuring everything. It's a hard process to get to managing and measuring everything, but you have to start somewhere. And uh, we definitely want to make that part of our culture. It doesn't matter how boring the activity is. Yeah, we want to track it, and we want to evaluate if it's successful or not.
1: What tools are you missing or what tools would you like to have or expand upon when it comes to data analytics? Is there anything, any, any plans that, that you say, okay, today we're here, tomorrow we'd like to be there?
2: I'm definitely, you know, in terms of where we are today, we are like so many organizations that are, we've become really, really good at maximizing a spreadsheet. Uh, and that has obvious limitations. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, moving that data to SharePoint or ServiceNow uh, we definitely know there are better tools out there that'll, that'll hopefully take a lot of the burden off of us in terms of uh, uh, how to analyze the data. But, but you know, one thing you, you just can't, you can't rely on technology for is you have to decide what data is worth collecting. And in many t- cases, I think uh, it doesn't hurt to try and start collecting it in, in a spreadsheet and then make a determination, okay, is this worth really you know, actually automating and putting into some other kind of uh, algorithm. But if you know, I had to see you know, what is uh, one thing that we, we, need, uh, we need more of, I, I think it's uh, uh, as people enter the workforce, I think it's just an awareness that, hey, it's part of the job now. You know, it used to be that this whole approach to data analytics, there's a specialist who could gather all the data and who would go look at it. And that really, that uh, universe doesn't exist anymore. If you're in the building at the FTC, you know, some component of your job is going to uh, require you to analyze data and uh, the more adept you are at it, the likely you'll have uh, more of an impact on decision making and uh, and mission here at the agency.
1: I think you just heard the entire vendor community sigh and go, oh, he went to the person side, not the tool side. So now when you get calls, uh, that's what you may get calls from the vendors when they listen to the show. Let's take a quick break and we come back. We can move on to some uh, newer priorities. My guest is Raga Vajula, the Federal Trade Commission's Chief Information Officer. I'm your host, Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
3: dot com. Information is powerful. Having the right information helps agencies award citizen benefits, accelerate infrastructure projects, make critical decisions on the battlefield, and much more to meet mission goals. To harness this information, agencies must modernize their approach to data management. Join Meritalk January 31st at the Veritas Public Sector Vision Day to discuss how agencies can take control of their data today to transform government tomorrow. Register at Meritalk.com slash Veritas Vision
1: see that cute little dog in the pet store chances are it came from a puppy mill a breeding facility that forces caged, neglected and often sick dogs to churn out puppies to be sold for profit meanwhile millions of wonderful healthy pets end up in animal shelters but with one simple choice you can help just by deciding to adopt instead of purchase your next pet not only are you saving a life you're taking a stand against puppy mills visit bestfriends.org slash puppy mills to learn more welcome back you're listening to ask the cio on federal news radio part of the federal news network i'm your host jason miller my guest is ragav Vajula, the federal trade commission's chief information officer for break we were talking about a lot of your older priorities mixing in a little new ones but let's just jump into some new priorities what are you hoping to get done over the next six or nine months you know at the risk
2: of uh signing uh, talking about the most boring things federal government i really want to move forward in all of our contract transitions uh, we put a lot of energy last year into releasing a multi-award blanket purchase agreement, and uh, we've got four vendors who've agreed to help us pick apart our existing services and uh, move them into move them into the cloud. Now we're going to go through the uh, the tough work of trying to figure out okay, what are those right task orders to write? What things move first? What things move second? What things move third? You know, we're very confident that that we have the right people who can kind of you know figure out what that order is. But that's that's a big. Uh, that's a big effort for us. Uh, is sequencing it that out and working with uh, also our customers to get them ready to, to be aware that you used to do this, now you're going to do this. That's going to be a big area of my focus is to make sure that there's a lot of good communication, make sure that happens smoothly. I think that, you know obviously there's a lot of uh, key, easy ones that people will, will pick up on. Uh, you know we're going to move our email into the cloud probably well after many other agencies did, but this is this is when we're going to do it for us. Uh, the other piece there that we're going to try and take a, a closer look on is, hey, how do we modernize our entire network? Over the last couple of years, we've been steadily removing all of our old legacy TDM connections and moving on to Ethernet, and now I want to take the next step, which is to really look at, hey, what is the optimal way to design a network that minimizes a lot of the latency and bandwidth issues other agencies have encountered when they've moved a lot of their stuff into the cloud? So in some ways, you know, we are you know, taking advantage and learning from what other agencies have gone through. We really want to make sure that we take care of the foundational elements uh, up front for all of our cloud migrations, which means we uh, we are going to focus on those things that are not as exciting as some of the other t- pieces out there. Yes, we will focus on security. We're going to focus on network. And we're going to focus on uh, contract stability. And I think if we have that, you know, I think uh, we get the right talent and the right teamwork and the technology will take care of itself over time.
1: It's interesting. I sent you the questions and then release popped in my inbox from Lidos saying we just won a big contract from the ftc and i said i was I hit the email too soon i felt like so i imagine that's one of those big multiple work contracts Lidos is one of the four that one maybe talk just a little bit at a high level about the contract and, and it's for it services it's for more than just it services
2: Oh the way we looked at the the market a couple of years ago was that we we saw this trend where agencies were trying to get into the cloud and they would write a contract that would talk about moving one element into the cloud. And then they and then inevitably they would get stuck because they still had all the other stuff that had to go into the cloud. And and whenever you do a brand new procurement, it's just a huge lift to go through that process. So we decided, hey, why don't we take a blanket purchase agreement approach? Let's identifying the market, a couple of players who have expertise across all the different elements of uh, IT out there, whether it's help desk, whether it's application development, whether it's infrastructure hosting, and really you know, build a, uh, a community of support here at the FTC that allows us, frankly, the flexibility to make mistakes. You know, I think uh, any, any kind of contract action is an exercise in risk management. And inevitably, we're going to take an action on moving something in the cloud that doesn't work out well. And we thought the BPA was a great uh, mechanism to kind of mitigate that risk, Uh, yet at the same point, uh, still build a lot of trust with our vendor community. And the other piece, too, that kind of fed into that, we've observed just uh, looking at all the vendors themselves, there's a ton of turnover in the vendor community. You're never quite sure who's going to get bought out by who. So for us, the the BPA structure, a multi-award BPA, just minimized so many risks for us in building a good, strong, technical foundation and a a high communication relationship uh, with a couple of key, you know, players. So in making that transition, it's going to be always going to be a learning process for us. But uh, again, I think it's going to be a process that allows us the flexibility to take risks and manage them effectively.
1: You make a very interesting point about the turnover in the vendor community, but you also talk about the risk, minimize risks. I want to talk about enterprise risk management in a little bit, but talk a little bit about why do you think this approach would minimize your risks? In some ways, someone would say, well, it's going to maximize your risks because you're dealing with four different vendors. Who now you got to manage these four competing interests, and we've seen some occasions that, for instance, the Homeland Security Department's you know, U.S. Citizenship Immigration Service, well, where they're forcing vendors to almost work together. Okay, if you don't work together, you're not getting another task order, or you're going to be penalized on your next next, next task order. So how, how do you minimize risk when you have these four vendors who potentially are all going to be whispering in your ear, do it my way? Well, first of all, they don't
2: whisper in my ear. They, <laughs> they are. We ran through our numbers before we did the BPA, and we looked at how many how much vendor turnover do we already have? And we were pretty confident that going down this approach would actually minimize a lot of the, the turnover, and uh, it would actually reduce it quite a bit. Uh, number two, you know, I think there are instances out there, I think you, you can point to probably much better than me, where people have had trouble getting their vendor community uh, to work together. Our observation was more and more of the vendors already are marketing themselves as a supplier of many, many partnerships. If you go to any You know, major companies' website now—they all talk about we have this partnership, we have that partnership, and so on. So the vendor community itself is getting better and better at operating in in an ecosystem type fashion. So we think the way the market is going, the trends—you know—the trends were uh, positive for us to go forward in this way. But then we didn't stop there. You know, when once we had the vendors on board, we had a we had a vendor open house. We asked all of them to come in. We asked all of our various stakeholders to come in and, and meet them. And you know, a big part of our effort is, is streamlining all the relationships between all these different parties, and we pay attention to that every single day. At the end of the day, what are the advantages of the BPA? The BPA offers you advantages in communication, and the more information we can share with our key partners, the more likely we think we'll have productive outcomes and how they respond to our task order proposals. Uh, that said, hey, you know, there's always downside risks that we want to navigate. And at the end of the day, I think there's always a better way to manage downside risk with the BPA than there is with the hard and fast, uh, you know, contract. And uh, but then again, I think uh, we're going to see what happens as we go forward. But I have a lot of confidence in uh, what we've done in our preparation, and a lot of confidence in the people who've put it together.
1: How will the BPA work? Meaning, will a mission side say we we have this we have this need, bring it to you, and then you'll you're through your office will go through the BPA, or will vice versa happen? They'll have this need. You'll work with the mission side on the need, and then the mission side, who usually has the money, will go through the BPA to get their vendor or get their partner.
2: You know, I think for that one, you know, we're pretty clear in our policies that uh, we have authorization officials and system owners throughout the organization. And really, my job is to make sure, regardless of where IT is done, it's done. It's done well, and that's the same thing. You know, in our acquisitions office. So for us, it's, it is just a tool in helping those key decision makers who play in those roles of authorization officials and system owners to do, to get the best product that they can. And uh, uh, we have a lot of lessons learned, shared lessons learned, and you know what different vendors are doing well and where they need to improve. And as far as that goes, you know, for me, honestly, I don't really anticipate any challenges there. I think at the end of the day, uh, we have a lot of confidence in the people who play authorization roles for us at the FTC and. Uh, we're always going to have good dialogue with them, and whatever decisions we do, it's going to be based on what's in the best interest of that program. So that's a long way of me saying, yeah, I think we can make it work. We'll be fine.
1: Excellent. I hope so. The other piece of this was around the network, and it's interesting you also um, talk about modernizing your network, and, and at the same time, the General Services Administration made a little bit of news in, back in December around extending agencies' transition to the what they call the EIS contract, Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Contract, and that's the big telecom replacement for the current networks. Is that playing into this, or is everything being done right now through that BPA, the network modernization? Is EIS playing a part of your thinking?
2: The BPA is, is amongst a suite of tools for us. You know, you have EIS out there. There's the uh, universal wireless and, you know, subcontracts out there. There are a ton of vehicles out there that we always look against to say, hey, where, do we, where are we going to get the best deal for us? There's a lot of existing... Uh, work that fell out of all those shared service vehicles that we try to target with the BPA because we had all these vehicles to do shared services and we didn't have one that really you know focused on our key uh, our key transitions for us so with that you know it's uh, we're always going to look at hey where do we think we're going to get the best opportunity to work with a a primary contractor who can get us the services that we need and obviously EIS is going to has a lot of uh, attractiveness for us in terms of what it can it can offer. I think in in terms of timing, uh, we want to assess our options, see what we can do to go sooner rather than later. I think for and all, all the agencies out there, everyone is trying to figure out when and where do we modernize our network. Uh, we went through a lot of uh, of growing pains, getting off of TDM and going to Ethernet. As I think many other agencies and for many of your listeners who are not aware of that, uh, that is still a big struggle. You know, for some places to get off TDM, so. We're very happy to have moved on from that, but we also want to figure out how can we get to the next step. And uh, I, if we can do it through EIS, great, but at the same time, I think GSA has a lot of other ways to help us out, too.
1: Very nice. Let's take a quick break. We come back. There's a, you mentioned enterprise risk management. There's security. There's plenty more to talk about. My guest is Raghav Vajula, the Federal Trade Commission's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
2: This hour of news is brought to you by Boeing. We're proud to call over 20,000 veterans, our team. Veterans make us better.
0: They're the first to defend and protect, but they're also the first to call in times of crisis. Just who are these first responders in the DOD? Find out in the fifth of the six-part series from AT&T Public Sector. Hear from Mike Leff. Vice President of Defense, as he discusses how the DoD can interoperate with the communications resources of FirstNet.
2: So we've had a lot of discussions with the military around FirstNet and the capability that brings uh, to to the military. Um, there is great interest in figuring out how to leverage the FirstNet network and capabilities because there's a lot of things that you know even take the National Guard. You know, when there's a you know, natural man-made disaster. Who gets called in? in It's the National Guard working with local, state, municipality, and the federal side. So I think they see this as uh, critically important to provide interoperability
0: and communications. Hear more on delivering the future of defense networking today from innovators and leaders of AT&T. Go to federalnewsnetwork.com slash defense.
3: Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
1: This is Jason Miller, executive editor of Federal News Network, inviting you to listen to Views from the Corner Office. Every week, we sit down with industry leaders who influence and impact the federal market. The show is not about the individual company, but about the opinions of the people who lead federal practices on technology, acquisition, and leadership issues. Tune in Fridays at noon on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, or subscribe to Views from the Corner Office on iTunes or Podcast One. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Raghav Vajala, the Federal Trade Commission's Chief Information Officer. Now, Raghav, before break, we're talking about some new priorities you went through Uh, network modernization. You went through the big uh, BPA contract. Let's also talk cybersecurity. That's always a priority for every CIO. And let's start with this continuous diagnostics mitigation program, CDM. The the FTC is considered a quote-unquote small agency when it comes to CDM. So you're in group F, so you guys probably are just in, even though DHS doesn't want to use phase one anymore, you guys probably are just in that phase one area.
2: Looking back at all of our cybersecurity stuff, I think where we first started this was Hey, we just started with basic building blocks we we first started looking at all of our security and policies and saying hey what needs to get updated so it doesn't matter where our content is and i think if you look back at a lot of our old uh, ig findings we had this stretch of uh, ig recommendations that in in large part were you know compliance related things that we had to address uh, as we were moving all of our services so our first cut was to just get stability in terms of how we made the key decisions and make sure those were repeatable and measurable throughout this entire effort. So we addressed a lot of those recommendations. We started putting into place all of our key decision making, started documenting all of our plans and procedures. And the first thing we realized we needed to do was, hey, we were gonna start with security. And and looking at that, uh, a big source of evolution for us was that as a small agency, we've never really had a, a, a 24 by seven mission purpose that uh, some of the larger agencies did, but that has been changing. Uh, there is no downtime for litigation anymore, and we have a lot of teams operating all the time on every weekend during all the holidays. So we realized we needed to have our our cyber operations step up and be of the same capacity and the same caliber. And at that end, you know, for us, the you know the CDM program was a great way of kind of getting into that uh, level of service in a way that you know also gave us a lot of partnerships and support through through the DHS. So uh, absolutely, You know, we're, we're looking forward to uh, being part of that process, and we've really kind of targeted a lot of our efforts to the bulk of equipment that we expect to continue you know, on into the future, our endpoints, our laptops, and our phones. And at the same time, we also you know, moved all of our stuff to strong multi-factor authentication. With the PIV card rolling out, uh, we decided to make sure before we put too much of our substantial back office operations into the cloud, we roll out the PIV card. So all of our operations work with the PIF card, and all of our operations are in, are in anticipation of moving more and more of our monitoring to CDM. We've moved a lot of our monitoring to MTIPS as well. So as much as we could along all of our different layers of our security stack, we want to operate in a way that assumed that we had services outside this building that could give us the coverage that we needed. So in that sense, whenever we think about cyber it's truly really for us a, a sense of how do we get the best coverage all the time for all of our people, no matter where they are. And uh, whenever we look at our services, you know that's why we you know work towards CDM, and we're looking forward to continuing working with DHS and whatever other programs that come out.
1: One last thing on security, specifically multi-factor. I understand that a lot of agencies made a lot of progress around the using the PIV cards over the last two or three, four years where are you guys going with that? Do you have a vision of what it may look like in, in the next, you know, two, three, four years?
2: We really want it to be, you know, seamless experience and really do it in a way where people, you know, love having that PIV card. So, for example, you plug in the PIV card, you put in your PIN, and you're on the domain, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. There's not an extra step to log in through the remote access or not an extra step to to work in through the VPN. Uh, really, the idea is that... A, we authenticate who you are and you're the right person to have access to that equipment, then at that point, you know, we're doing everything in the background to make sure what should you be authorized access to, and then how are we monitoring what you're looking at and reviewing. That is that is our vision for how we want to execute against it. There's a ton, as you can imagine, you know, devil's in the details when you think about it that way. Every little one of those steps is contingent on are we properly authenticating who that person is, are we properly authorizing the access to content that that person should have. So we want, really want to have you know, we want to have simple authentication, strong authentication up front. But then on the back end, we want it to be done, once it's done up front, we want to do it in a, a way where we can have a lot of confidence that uh, that person is someone who we trust and that person should have the access to information in a timely fashion. Those are a lot of hops to get through. But that's a big reason why we're looking at our network first. With our network, we address that first. Once we get to the network, then we look at the application layer and move on and on deeper and deeper into our content.
1: In many ways, what you're describing to me is that idea of zero trust network. We hear that all the time. That's the latest buzzword. But uh, it seems like the pieces that you're talking about are going to get you there eventually. Uh, have you guys started to look at that idea of zero trust, or is it just, again, another buzzword like maybe enterprise risk management's a buzzword? Yeah, the
2: short answer is you know, it, it probably – is still in buzzword land, but I think the bigger, the bigger piece there is, how well are you enforcing what you trust? And can you do that at each individual layer of your uh, uh, of your architecture? For me, it's always tough to say zero trust because there's always some other step that you have to go through. But it really starts with, do you trust this person? Do you trust this piece of equipment? Do you trust that they are, they are who they say they are and they should have access to that content? Do you trust that this software should run on the computer? there's so many you know layers to it and we definitely want to plug away at each one of those layers to the point where when you ask someone in our organization hey what does it mean for something to be secure we have a very thorough checklist of everything that needs to be addressed positively and then yes after that we're going to trust you and we're going to let you do what you have to do but that list of all the things that we are going to test and make sure we have a positive checklist for it's going to be organic it's going to grow over time working on what the adversaries are doing, we'll add to that list. They'll learn what we're doing. They're going to figure out something else. Uh, We want to make sure we're being flexible and always continuously improving in that process. So there's never going to be this day where, oh, we've established a zero trust network. Uh, I don't think that part of the buzzword is reality. The reality is, hey, we always have to keep on being prepared and being prepared to learn how the adversary is going to try and get into our
1: network. I want to shift gears a little bit, talk about workforce. One of the things that you said very early on and kind of data analytics you really need it's about people it's not about necessarily the tools or the next great shiny widget so let's maybe talk about how you as the CIO are ensuring that your workforce has the skill sets that are, are, are in place that they have the skill sets so you guys at the FTC are uh, successful
2: you know the first thing is and you know these are going to sound like very non technology tools based looking based way of answering the question but the but the first thing is just that definition of workforce is going to change a lot you know, it used to be if, uh, you know, going back to the spreadsheet example, there would be some kind of IT expert on how to code up a spreadsheet with macros. The reality is more and more of the people outside the IT workforce know how to do that and are quite, quite proficient at it. So the definition of who is in the IT workforce, that is changing pretty dramatically. So the first thing I tell everyone, the first thing I need to do is just to be honest with people that the roles and expectations are going to change pretty dramatically. That universe of where someone is gonna uh, get a job to manage an on-premise you know, email server, that uh, universe is shrinking pretty quickly uh, and it's being replaced with people who are really good at contract management, who are really good at cybersecurity, who are really good at you know, performance metrics, really good at you know, manipulating the data that's in the systems. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, the fact that success can't be getting the system into production. You know, success is about are people using the technology, Are people using it to make an impact. And, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, what is success from point A to point B and, and trying to write up all of our contracts with, uh, you know, some of our BPA winners. The first thing we told all of them is, is that we don't want any of you to think about success as just getting something into production for us. For us, we want to have a relationship with you where you're helping us use these new technologies. That's what we're counting on you for. That's how you're going to add value. Uh, to our organization getting people to that point you know so one thing that's what we've told people you know how do we get them there i say the last uh, two three years we spent a ton of time walking through with everyone every you know first doing all the basic building blocks of their training plans their performance plans what's expected of them and their roles but the bigger piece there is giving them opportunities to go ahead and play these roles and see what happens the big piece that we're trying to do there is Hey, how well can we effectively delegate down throughout our organization to ensure that hey that person has an authority to make a decision on a configuration? So, how do they make that decision? What are all of our training policies and procedures? And it's just a cycle that we go through: identify people, put them put, put them in positions to make decisions, give them the training to make decisions, have they made decisions effectively or not? And we modify and tweak as we go on. Uh, I said earlier before we track every single decision we're making uh, when it comes to all of our configurations and. Every quarter, we try and make more and more decisions, and every quarter, we try and grade ourselves, are those decisions actually successful in making things more stable or not, or making things more productive or not? There is no magic bullet or silver bullet on how we get our staff ready for that. It's just more of a case of we want to be honest with them. Your job is going to change. You know, it's expected of you, in terms of for you to be successful, make an impact for our organization, is going to change, but at the same time, you know, leadership is here to help you get through that. Uh, I think the FTC prides itself on being in one of the best places to work and, you know, I want to make sure we continue you know, to do that as we go through a lot of our modernization efforts.
1: One of the big challenges that every agency has is the training piece. Are you guys able to have and an afford the training side or is that, again, that's done and you have to be kind of creative in terms of that training. Sometimes it's in-house, sometimes it's, it's not necessarily always going out for training.
2: Well, there are two things there. One is, absolutely, we are creative. We have to do a lot of in-house training. We will we'll find a couple of people who are really, really proficient at something, and maybe they'll do a, a presentation on how to set up pivot tables in Excel, or how to review the reports out of ServiceNow to, to make a forecast, or how to look at existing, how to look at past data out of USA spending and see what should we do in the future. Uh, we try and do as much of that as we can. At the same time, though, I do think that the market is shifting, too. I think there's more and more opportunities you know, for training online and and uh, more and more opportunities for us to, to learn from other agencies. I think the best example of that is, hey, we definitely are learning and watching a lot of how State and DHS do a lot of their training and, they're, and they've uh, – uh, and talking to a lot of their staff and, and they've been really good about saying, hey, this is what we've learned how to do. You guys can learn how to, you know, do it as well. So uh, there is a lot of creativity, but I do think there's a lot of uh, – uh, camaraderie and collaboration across the federal government. We know it's not, it's an issue for everybody. And uh, I, I think other agencies, you know, are definitely, you know, getting in there and trying to share as much information as they can.
1: All right. Very good advice. Unfortunately, though, we are out of time for today. Let me thank my guest, Raghav Vajala, the Federal Trade Commission's Chief Information Officer. Raghav, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for having me, Jay. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
0: You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. You made it. Here, finally. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of that place you've always wanted to go. You know the one. It's nice. Even the kids like it. This place is so cool. And they never like it. Mom, can we go to the pool? Look at that. Not even asking for the Wi-Fi. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.